Well, good morning, everyone. Grace and peace. It is uh, definitely good to be back in the land of the living. Um, feels like it's been forever since I've been here, so we're going to try to get back in the rhythm of this, or I'm going to try to get back in the rhythm. Uh, I trust that y'all are firmly in the rhythm of the book of Revelation. Um, can y'all believe it's already day 58 of the year? Here we are. We're moving. And um, I think Psalm 58, as we uh, continue through uh, the book of Revelation today, it's very apropos to uh, the church at Smyrna. Is what we're going to start today. So let's pray together. Psalm 58. Do you, rulers, indeed speak justice, justly? Do you judge people with equity? No. In your heart, you devise injustice. And your hands mete out violence on the earth. Even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward, spreading lies. Their venom is like the venom of a snake and like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears. They will not heed the tune of the charmer, however skillful skillful the enchanter may be. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away when they draw the bow. Let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether they be green or dry, the wicked will be swept away. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged. When they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked, then people will say, surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen indeed. Okay, open your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 8. But before we do that, I want you to think back to what Pastor Kurt taught last week about the church, or the last two weeks, uh, at the church at Ephesus. And what was your, what is, just a couple of you share what your main takeaway from the teaching from the church at Ephesus has been. What's been sticking with you? They need to get soft. Say it again? They need to be more loving. Yeah, yeah, it's like, one of the things about these churches, and we're gonna, I'm gonna kind of unfold some things for you today, is uh, yeah, there's there's a way to deal. Remember, I, I made the case at the beginning of the study that the the primary purpose of the Book of Revelation is pastoral. It is it, it's not this roadmap for the future, but it is pastoral. In that it is a letter to teach, a letter, a vision that John receives to help us to maintain our faithful relationship with God and others in the midst of an unholy world. Does that sound like 
very relevant to where we are now. Mm-hmm. I mean, the world in which we live in is unholy. How do we stay faithful? All right. Well, one of the ways that you do that is that you double down. Like, this is the truth. And you become kind of rigid and you withdraw from people that you can't be a priest. Remember, that's how the the book begins. To him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a what? Priest. How can we be a priest? God's priest to people in fallen Babylon, in this unholy world, if we are withdrawn from them or if we are radically judgmental of them. Right? And so that's that's the problem with the Ephesian church. They got a lot go, a lot good going for them. Don't miss that part. But as Brent said, they have lost their first love. The love of God cannot be divorced from the love of people. You can't do it. Remember when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is? What is it? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. A better translation of that is, and another way to say the same thing is, Love your neighbor as yourself. So that was that's what was going on in the Ephesian church. Yeah, they were they were committed to orthodoxy, but they were committed at the expense of a faithful, loving witness to the world. All right. So that's Ephesus. Pastor Kurt told you that Ephesus was the largest city. In Asia Minor, right? And so if you'll notice, when we go through these seven churches, it's kind of going clockwise, uh, beginning with Ephesus uh, there, that's number one. We just kind of go in this clockwise uh, motion. And that that was intentional, I'm sure, on uh, John's part, just to kind of keep everybody organized. But I want you to look at those seven names And Clint Eastwood helps us to remember these. Remember the good, the bad, and the ugly? Anybody see that? Come on. So that's the way these churches, there's there's three groups of churches of the seven. Uh, Good, uh, we're fixing to get a good church. A good church is described as one that Jesus has nothing bad to say about. And that is Smyrna and Philadelphia. There are ugly churches that that need a little work. Jesus says good things about them, but also says things that need correction. Those are the ugly churches. It is Pergamum, Pergamum, Thyatira, and uh, uh, Ephesus. Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira are the ugly churches. And then there's bad churches. There's two of those that Jesus has nothing good to say about, which is Sardis and Laodicea. The good, the bad, and the ugly. So, wouldn't it be our desire then for our discipleship, for our following of Jesus, to put us in this place where we would be lumped in 
with the good churches. What is going to stun you about this is that really these are the type of churches that we would struggle to have anything to do with. So it's got to make you wonder, to what degree are we willing to be a radical, our lives, and us collectively, as a church, as a men's Bible study, our lives to be a radical alternative to the prevailing culture. Marked by this, like, this, this, uh, this call that Jesus has to the Ephesian church to regain and to hold on to our first love. Because we love many, many things. And Jesus is inviting us to love the right things. Alright, questions before we kind of move into the Smyrna realm. It's even fun to say that. Of all these seven towns, um, this is the only one left. Smyrna is the only one that's still on the map. It's not called uh, Smyrna anymore. It's called Izmir. Has anybody been to this town? Anybody been to been, you've been to Izmir? Wow. Uh, when did you do that? It was when you were back in the military? Back in the days. Wow. Wow. Uh, Izmir was. Uh, like uh, established originally in about a thousand BC by by uh, some some by by Greeks and um, like it's called its nickname is the first city of Asia Minor. So what is our first city? Not the first town, but like we we, we use that title honorifically, like the first lady. Well, she's not first, but. She, you can make the argument she's the most important lady in our country, right? So what would what would qualify as the first city of America? Philadelphia, New York. New York. Yeah, who do the terrorists come after first? New York, and there's a reason for that. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's the biggest, it's the most exciting. That was Smyrna. For its first 400 years. And then it was destroyed. It was, it was leveled to the ground by the Lydians. And it lay dormant for, uh, another 200 years. So make sure my math is right. Yeah. For 200 years. And then literally out of nowhere, it arose out of the ashes and became this very, very posh, prominent city. You can see it's on the water, and uh, there is there there was a street that began uh, in the harbor there, and it was a golden street, and it was kind of down. The way it works was kind of down low, and it goes up this hill. And as you walked this golden street, there was temple after temple after temple after temple to all of these different gods. And at the top of the hill was a temple to Zeus, of course. It also had the distinction of being the first city in Asia Minor to uh, have a uh, temple dedicated to Tiberius. Um, one of the things that happened, so that you, 
got to reach back into your Roman history. So Julius Caesar has the distinction of moving Rome from a republic to a monarchy dictatorship. Right? So it was bad. It wasn't good. Julius Caesar was a bad guy. Right? So it moves it to that. Well, whenever Julius Caesar dies, his uh, nephew, Octavian, which became uh, Augustus, deified him. That he became a god. And then that began to become tradition with all of the particular good emperors is they w- it would be required of people to worship them. Temple of Tiberius in Smyrna. And so you are people that are rag- radically oriented to the gods, radically oriented to the worship of, of Caesar. Uh, there was also a large Jewish community, uh, interestingly enough, in Smyrna. And so you get some of those dynamics uh, in this letter as we read through it. So, think about this. First city of Asia Minor, that's its nickname. And it literally was a city that came to life again out of the ashes of being destroyed. And notice what Jesus says. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. Remember, at the beginning of all of these addresses to the churches, uh, what John, John does is he reaches back to how Jesus was described earlier in the book. And those attributes that are chosen are particular to the context of the church. All right. If this city is a city that is heralded as being the first, ah, let me remind you who is really the first. The first and the last who died, kind of like our city. Our city died and it came to life again, right? So he's like thoroughly speaking to where these people are. Now, verse 9. Very frustrating. Let's, let's, uh, get your, look at your Bibles and tell me what you have there. I know your, what else you got? Oh, thank God. Somebody's got it right. Uh, who said tribulation? Yeah. Anybody else got anything else? There's a third option. No, no, no. The first word. Yeah, I know your, mine says afflictions, we've got tribulation, and we've got, anything else? Suffering? Suffering? That's a good one, so there's a fourth option then. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Persecution. If you go down to verse 10, remember that, that's a fun word. Um, In Greek, it's flipsis. We've talked about that. It's a major theme throughout the book of Revelation. Flipsis, tribulation, persecution, suffering. Um, I mean, affliction is good, but I just wish that they would make every occurrence the same. Because if it's a main theme throughout the book, it helps. Because we get to this word, uh, I think it's in chapter 7, 
These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. And we all, dun, 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 tribulation, right? And it helps us that we've, we've been talking about tribulation the whole time. So that slips us. And then here at the end of, well, in the middle of verse 10, we also have the word again. But this time, my translation, it, within two verses, translate the same word differently. Earlier it's affliction, then it's persecution. Regardless of how we translate it, it's the same word. And it's this major theme throughout the book. Whenever this sort of action comes our way, affliction, tribulation, suffering, what do we want to happen? What? Suffering end. End. We want it to stop. And so we, 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 uh, discharge a whole lot of energy to get it to stop. And this becomes a challenge to us because especially in an environment like Smyrna, there's some easy outs. Because the reason they are getting persecuted is because they are not they are not measuring up to the status quo. They're not worshiping the emperor. They're not worshiping these other gods. They are they are doing things that makes them suspicious. And so they suffer for it. One of the things that we're going to learn in the book of Revelation is that there in the ancient world, there is serious economic ramifications for following Jesus. And this is going to be one of these churches that experiences that. You know, you've heard about the, and this is in chapter 13, you've heard about the mark of the beast. Right? And we're not going to let anything get in, in, embedded in, under our skin or on our forehead or all that stuff, right? Because that would be the us taking the mark of the beast. Brothers and sisters, please. You are marked right now. Your right hand and your forehead, they are marked right now. You carry around in your body the mark of the living Christ. Because that's the, you know, it's the mark of the beast gets all of the, all of the, of the airtime in the book of Revelation. But the mark of God is more commonly discussed in the book of Revelation than the mark of the beast. You are marked with your, your mind and your heart are oriented to the things of God or they are oriented to the things of fallen Babylon and of the beast. Your hand, your right hand, the hand of action. Sorry, left-handed folks, right? It's just the way, it's just the way the Bible talks about this is, this is how you live out your relationship with God. You live it out through your right hand. And, and so if those things, what, what the book of Revelation is teaching, if those things are marked with the mark of God, you will be marginalized from the prevailing culture. And you will be distanced, you, you will, you will be distant in some way from participating in the normal activities of culture. 
<coughs> and for them, it was buying and selling. So, do you see what's on the line for these people? It's like, they can be faithful, and then they're going to struggle to feed their family. It's just the way it is. And we complain about being a Christian in the United States these days, and it's like nothing compared to what these people are going through. Please. Right? And so that's what, so you've got to, one of the things that's important is as we get through, as we go through the book of Revelation, we'll be able to pull back, oh, that's what the Smyrnans were dealing with. That mark of the beast, they, they didn't have it. They had the mark of God, and that was causing them to be be persecuted. That was causing them to suffer. You see, that's one of the ways in which our culture waters down the gospel. Just follow Jesus, and your life will be better. It's not true. Follow Jesus, and you might just get kicked in the teeth. Are you willing to get kicked in the teeth? All right. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty. All right. This is their, this is what Jesus is seeing. Their faithful, their faithfulness to God has led them to a place of suffering and of poverty. But then, He says, wait a second, the way you're seeing this may be wrong. The way I see it is this, you're rich. It's like, all of a sudden, this is a link. You might miss it. This is a link back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Particularly 1 and 2. Because what is is the truth about the garden? The garden, a place of scarcity or abundance? Abundance. See, heaven, because of their faithful faithful relationship with God, heaven is literally touching their lives at every moment. There is abundance, even though it appears there is poverty. So he's trying to get them, I mean, when you suffer, it takes its toll on you, doesn't it? In any way that we may be suffering, it takes its toll. And he's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You've got to see the situation that you're in, not as it is. Not as you see it here on earth, but as I see it from a heavenly perspective. You're rich. I know about the slander. Slander is another word that's going to get, come up again and again. This is one of the... Chief tools of fallen Babylon. Chief tools of the beast. He slanders. What would be your 50 cent definition of slander? Anybody? Lying. Lying? Yeah, I like that. Lying about the character of God. Good. Anything else? Slander? Yeah, that... This is, this is what the snake was doing in the garden. He was slandering God. Right? 
He was lying about God's nature and God's character. Now that's really, really good. And so, I know about the slander. So there's the people in Smyrna that are slandering these Christians. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So not only are the uh, Christians in Smyrna, which certainly would have consisted of both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, not only are they suffering because of their place in the Roman Empire, but they're suffering at the hands of uh, those in the community, those Jewish people in the community that have not converted to Christianity. Blasphemy. blasphemy, slander, yeah. It's those are two ways to translate that word. That's good. Alright. This is a tragic yeah, yeah, Gary, go ahead. What was the significance of the ten days? I've never found anything that mine says uh, I hadn't got there yet, have we? Yeah, hold 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 up there, we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, so Christians, so this, this is the reality. Christians were first persecuted by Jews. Right? Stephen was stoned by an angry mob of Jewish people. Alright. Kurt mentioned Polycarp last week. Y'all heard old Polycarp? You should go spend some time this week watching videos about Polycarp. That dude's amazing. He was a bishop in Smyrna. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, that's the first recorded Christian martyr that we have. That's Stephen. Remarkable story. Acts chapter 8. Uh, Polycarp is the second person that we have a recorded history of his martyrdom. And he happens to be Bishop of Smyrna. Alright? And so, it seems as though that Polycarp's martyrdom was, the, the, the flames were literally fanned because he was burned at the stake. Now, the flames didn't kill him, so they had to spear him in the side. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, but the, 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 fl- the flames were literally fanned to get him killed by Jews. So that's like really sad. It's, to me, it's sad. But what is sadder is that as Christians grew in numbers and grew in uh, power, guess who Christians started persecuting? Jews. And in some ways, if you know your history, this is kind of where we're at today, right? It's really, really sad. Because notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't go say, go kick all the Jews' butts. He doesn't say that. But if you take the, the two churches together, it's like, you've got to stay faithful in love. Right? Alright. So that's where, so, so the persecution here is obviously coming from Jews, right? Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Oh, geez, thanks. Right? It's like, okay, uh, that's how we get through this. It's like we grin and bear it. Well, 
Maybe it's more like grin and thrive it. That, that Jesus is, is showing us a way that we can actually thrive in the midst of potential suffering. Before. So this is probably 70 AD. Polycarp may have been born by now. Uh, but Polycarp died about 150 A.D. Polycarp is a spiritual grandson of the person that wrote Reve- Revelation. Uh, the person who, uh, I think it's Irenaeus, that John discipled, was discipled by, w- discipled Polycarp. Is that right, Chris? Yeah. So that's kind of the, the, the spiritual history. John, Irenaeus, Polycarp. And Polycarp was martyred at about 150 A.D. <coughs> so he's like this. Polycarp becomes this 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 written historical living embodiment of of this. I want to read you a quote from Polycarp. <laughs> this is like gives you a little bit of a sense of who he is, um, and it, it definitely gives you a sense that man John had a heavy hand in spiritually shaping him through Irenaeus. He says, whoever does not confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is an antichrist. Whoever does not confess that the testimony of the cross is of the devil. Whoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. And whoever perverts the words of the Lord for their own desires and says that there is neither a resurrection nor a final judgment is the firstborn child of Satan. So there you are. You ever hear a bishop talk like that? Chris? (laughs) Yeah. So he was serious, man. Polycarp was serious because he had to be. Because the temptation to follow the ways of the evil one were very, very pervasive in Smyrna. Because remember, that's what Revelation does. It gives us two ways of living and being in the world. Are we going to follow the values of New Jerusalem, the values of the cross? Or are we going to follow the values of follow Babylon and the devil? Sounds a little more black and white like Paul. Yeah, very much. Yeah. John was pretty black and white too. I mean, that's a direct, that first line of that quote's a direct quote from, from 1 John. Do not be afraid of, of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer, blipsis, persecution for 10 days. Seven, ten, twelve. Um, they're all ways of talking about completeness or wholeness. And so when he says ten days here, he's not meaning ten days. He is meaning this suffering is going to be a ongoing reality for you. When we get to it, we'll, we'll dig into it more. But when John sees later, uh, the multitude upon multitude, clothed in white, and the question is asked, who are these? And the angel responds, these are those 
who have come out of the great tribulation. And the great tribulation is not an intense period of persecution. But the great tribulation is great in that it happens over a long period of time. The great tribulation started with the stoning of Stephen. And it continues to this very day. It's like in America, it's very common to say, no, the great tribulation is something that's in the future that I'm going to get raptured up to heaven before it happens and I'll never have to suffer that. Tell that to a Christian in Miramar or in China or someplace like that and see what response you get. Because these people are suffering because of their faith. Now, the people in Smyrna, like go, go back in time and tell the people in Smyrna, nah, the great tribulation, it's actually in the future. And they're like, well, God, I can't take any more already. Stay back to the future. Back to, yeah, that's good. Back to the future. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah, let's go back to Smyrna. Let's tell them that, Derek, and see what they say. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So, what Jesus is telling them is like, I see, I see you. I see that you are suffering and that you're poor. And I see that it's going to get worse. It's going to continue. How do you respond to that? Definitely left the part out about burning the stake. Say that again? Definitely left the part out about burning the stake. Yeah, right. Yep. That's right. That's that's a good point. Yeah, and, and it's it's Polycarp knew this. Polycarp knew this letter. Uh, there's no doubt about it to me. Um so last part of verse ten. Be faithful. Stay the course. Keep your heart and your mind oriented to God, even to the point of death. And I will give you, I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Kurt, go over this with you. Each of the letters ends like this. And so, it seems like he would say, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to this church. But it's just not for the Smyrnans. It's seven churches. Yes, seven historical churches. But this is an address to all of us for all time until Christ returns. And that's the invitation that we have to listen to what the Spirit is saying. That there will be times when we will suffer for our faith. And that we must stay the course. The one who is, remember the word, the Greek word here? Nike. There you, who said that? There you go, Tom. Yeah, the one who is victorious. 
Uh, what else do you have there besides victorious? What other words do you have? Who said conquers? Yeah, there you go. The one who is it? The one who conquers? It's a bad translation. Uh, the one who is conquering. It should be the. It's it's a present active part part eh, participle. It is present and on is a present and ongoing reality. Uh, that is the present active participle. The one who is is victorious now and continuing to be victorious. Uh, however, we want to say that this is it's not a once and done thing, but it is this pre, this 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 struggle, uh, the struggle that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter four. Uh, it is this ongoing struggle to maintain faithfulness and to experience Christ's victory. We're not going to defeat the powers. Christ has already done it. And it's our calling to live into it. So, be faithful even to the point of death. And then the last line, the one who is conquering will not be hurt at all by the second death. So this is the first time in the book of Revelation that this term is used. So death number one, and I'll close with this, death number one, we are all subject to death number one as a result of original sin. Unless Jesus, except for those who... When Jesus, when Christ returns, and who is alive when Christ returns, they will not experience death number one. But until then, everybody will experience death number one. But what the book of Revelation teaches us is that is not what we need to concern ourselves with. It is death number two, which is spiritual death, ultimate separation from God uh, for eternity. That is second death. So he's like, okay, I get it. This is rough. But know that eternity, the reality of eternity, is much more powerful than the suffering that you are going through now. It's like we get to live in eternity now. It's like that kind of gives perspective on all of our situations, right? That no matter how hard things get with your family, at work, you name it, that when we are dealing with those things in the perspective of eternity, it gives us power. Power to stay the course. All right. Anybody have a question for the good of the group? May it go down that I got through a church in one Wednesday instead of two. How's that? All right. <clears throat> Any questions? Yes, Rich. I don't know if I'm wrong with person, but wasn't there a time where Nile was eaten and there was fear of famine? I don't know about that, but there was always fear of famine in the ancient world. It was like this regular, ongoing thing. Yeah. My question was, would be, did this all 
this coincide to that? Oh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure, Richard, uh, of a particular famine. I don't know. But food insecurity was a, was a, was a consistent thing. And then you, you are an adherent of this wacky religion and you're going to get left out. And that's what's happened to these folks. <coughs> I think that we have to be challenged by this, by the church at Smyrna, is, man, the pressure that we face from our peers to be a certain way, to be a certain type of person, to participate in certain types of evil, maybe lying at work, or you fill in the blank. It's strong. It's really, really strong. And while the suffering may not be death, to maintain faithfulness, it's going to lead to this place and, uh, of suffering. And it's our hope that we can be faithful even in the midst of the pressure uh, to not be. Yes, Tom, last thing. Well, you're faithful. I, I go back to Big Five. Anytime you're faithful or, or gracious or compassionate, it does always reflect God. That's right. That's right. That's right. When we, when we choose to keep our lives radically oriented to God and be faithful to God and be faithful, right, to the, the Ephesians were not faithful in their calling to be a radical alternative to follow Babylon. They were not being faithful. So it's like this multi-orbed reality of being faithful. When we are being faithful, we are being most human. Truly human. Because that's how we were made by God in His image. Very good. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will give us wisdom to recognize when we are being tempted to abandon our trust in you. When the pressures of fallen Babylon come our way, Lord, may we have clarity to see them as they are and to stay the course. Even if it costs us something financially, if it costs us something reputationally, Lord, may we be completely and utterly surrendered to your goodness and your love. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said. Go in peace. See you all next week. Pastor Kurt, we'll see you next week.